The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, it's Monday the 9th of October in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll. Israel strikes back at Gaza after Hamas attacks kill more than 700 people. Hamas faces international condemnation as tensions in the Middle East flare, plus fears of a proxy war. Oil surges as the risk of a wider conflict puts markets on edge. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. More than 700 Israelis, most of them civilians, have been killed by Hamas in the weekend's attacks on southern Israel. About 400 Palestinians have also died in fighting and retaliatory attacks as the Israeli military has regained control over most areas breached by militants. The operation by Hamas, which included taking scores of Israeli hostages, was an unprecedented incursion that has shaken regional stability and markets. Liron Ohayan Shakti's relatives were among those taken. I I, I don't know how this can be resolved in a way that will secure their lives and, 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 and bring them back to Israel alive in one piece. I don't know how this can be done. Liran Ohayan Shakti says she doesn't know how she'll be reunited with her family. It's unclear how many hostages have been taken and Hamas says it was holding dozens of commanders and soldiers. Reacting to the attacks, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the country is now at war with Hamas. Hamas started a cruel and evil war. We will win this war, but the price is too heavy to bear. This is a very difficult day for all of us. The timing and scale of the attack appears to have caught Netanyahu's government by surprise. The country's officials have been warning for months that Palestinian militant groups were preparing for violence, but the attack still appears to represent one of the biggest failures by Israeli intelligence in decades. Within hours of Saturday's attacks, the Israeli Defence Forces launched Operation Swords of Iron, cutting off power and carrying out airstrikes against targets in Gaza. The Palestinian Health Ministry says hundreds of people, including children, have been killed there. Reacting to the events, Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian observer at the United Nations, said this. We chose the peaceful path to achieve our rights, but Israel continued using blunt force against Palestinian lives and Palestinian rights. Israel cannot wage a full-scale war on a nation, its people, its land, its holy sites, and expect peace in exchange. Despite Riyad Mansour's comments, Israel says it won't stop until Hamas's military infrastructure is dismantled. That's a task that seems likely to take months and will likely include a ground invasion. President Joe Biden has told Prime Minister Netanyahu that additional military assistance for Israel is now on the way, with six US naval vessels now headed to the eastern Mediterranean to, quote, bolster regional deterrence. 
Meanwhile, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the UK stands unequivocally with Israel following the attacks. Now is not a time for equivocation and I'm unequivocal. Hamas and the people who support Hamas are fully responsible for this appalling act of terror. Rishi Sunak's comments come as Saturday's strike and Israel's subsequent declaration of war threatened to unnerve markets. Oil has surged by as much as 5% after the attacks. And while the events don't pose an immediate threat to crude supplies, there is a risk the conflict could spiral into a more devastating proxy war involving the US and Iran. Turning now to other news, the Labour leader Keir Starmer says the party must keep its composure over the prospect of power. At the start of possibly the last conference before a general election, the Labour leader spoke at the party's women's conference. A simple message that we take to the country, that Labour will make a practical difference to the lives of millions of women in this country. Starmer's Labour Party is expected to use the conference to outline plans for the NHS and for growing the economy. Bloomberg understands that the party is considering plans to borrow to invest in British industry. And Metro Bank has secured a £925 million financing package deal which includes a 40% haircut on some bondholders. The agreement sees Colombian financier Jaime Galinsky take a controlling interest in the British retail and commercial bank. Metro gains some much-needed breathing space after a tumultuous week that saw its share price whipsaw. Of course, the story that is dominating our programming today are the events of the weekend in Israel. More than 1,100 people are dead in Israel and Gaza after the weekend's Hamas attacks and the retaliatory airstrikes on the Palestinian territory. It's the worst attack on Israel in 50 years with potentially wide-reaching consequences. For the latest, we're joined by our Israel Bureau Chief Ethan Bronner in Tel Aviv and in studio with me in London is our EMEA News Director Rosalind Matheson. Good morning to you both. Ethan, I'd like to start with you. What is the latest? that you can tell us this morning about what Israeli forces have been able to do in terms of regaining control of areas where fighting was ongoing over the weekend. Yes, I can, Stephen. So um, the situation is remains relatively dire in Israel. The Israelis say that Hamas fighters are continuing to sneak in in small numbers to Israel and remain at large uh, in Israel in the south mostly, but possibly beyond. There are still families being held hostage by Hamas fighters in the south of Israel. There are at least 100 Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. So from an Israeli perspective, the situation is not yet under control 48 hours after the assault. Uh, They are, of course, uh, striking by air in Gaza and say that they are going after uh, a bunch of launching sites and uh, military infrastructure uh, held by Hamas. Uh, But they were clearly caught uh, in in terrible surprise. And this is taking a lot longer and a lot more painful than they uh, ever expected. What have we heard from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the government about what they expect to do from here? Uh, The prime minister has actually not held especially uh, high presence lately. I'm sure it's a very difficult time for him. I would say that the military uh, officials and those who have been in and out of government are talking about a months long campaign, which will involve a ground force, very likely. No one is asserting it as a, as a fact, but it's increasingly viewed as likely. Uh, and that this is going to take a long time, but that they say they are determined to never allow Hamas to have the capacity to, to carry out such an attack again. Ethan, stay with us. I'd like to turn to Rosalind Matheson, our EMEA News Director, who's in studio with us. Um, there was a meeting also of the UN Security Council last night. Ros, what do we know about what happened there? 
Well, there was that meeting. It was a closed-door meeting and obviously an effort by some members, including the US, to get a unified statement condemning Hamas for this attack on Israel. We didn't see that statement eventually. In a way, that's no surprise, of course, when you look at the makeup of the UN Security Council. You've got Russia and China there. Russia um, has supported um, Iran, obviously, in the Middle East, which in turn backs uh, Hamas. And China tends to walk a line on this. You can see in the statements they've issued so far since this attack Attack, not overtly criticising uh, Hamas by name, not overtly calling out the Palestinians for this, just urging a ceasefire and no great desire to be part of a statement that's condemning Hamas. Of course, there have been broader questions over the utility of the UN Security Council in recent years, including its response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So you're not really going to see strong leadership necessarily coming from the UN in this moment. The real thing to watch, obviously, is the key ally of Israel, which is the US. So far, the US has sent six vessels, including an aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean. How, how should we assess the US response so far to these events? Well, certainly a high level of concern about what's going on, strong statements of support for Israel saying they'll support Israel in, in a number of ways, including potentially militarily talk of more aid packages coming in. Of, and, and, and the U.S. has had a role over the years in sort of the development and, and, the, and the production of the Iron Dome uh, missile system, which has proved quite effective yet again in the recent events. The question is, like, what does the presence of the U.S. Navy uh, close by do? to send a signal for a start. The US is in the air and the idea that people need to probably keep a lid on contagion effect from what's happened. Again, the concern that this sprawls out into other areas of the Middle East. So that's an important thing. Just again, the US could be uh, needing to potentially, worst case scenario, evacuate its own citizens from the area. Ethan, to you and a word on the military response we've had from Israel so far. Can you describe to us what has happened in terms of military operations since Saturday? Sure. Uh, and one last thing I would, I would, I think what Ross said is very important. And just to point out that the, the, the presence of that U.S. Uh, system here is really aimed at Hezbollah and Lebanon, as she implied. It, it, is, not to, it is not aimed at Hamas uh, in the south. It is aimed at the fear uh, that there could be a kind of a multi-front war and to send a signal. In terms of what Israel has done, it has there something like 29 uh, spots along the, the border fence that were breached on Saturday morning. They have repaired them and and say, largely secured them. They have um, mostly they have arrested and killed a whole bunch of Hamas fighters in the south, uh, and they have now been uh, hitting uh, from the air uh, hundreds of, of targets uh, and especially uh, launcher sites to reduce the number of rockets and missiles that Hamas can send to Israel. But they are uh, finding it much more difficult than expected. They have called up four divisions. There's a whole bunch of uh, reservists going down. They're already complaining of a slight lack of equipment. It's fairly chaotic, it must be said. This is not a well-ordered situation from Israel's perspective. There's been much discussion about the intelligence failures that led to this attack happening as a surprise on Israel. What is being said about that there now? 
Uh, <clears throat> this is seen as the perhaps the worst uh, intelligence failure, certainly since the um, 1973 war. Uh, and again, it's of a, of a sort of double nature. One is an operational one. They didn't have enough uh, troops down along the fence. Uh, but it was largely a conceptual one. And here, I think this will take a long time to understand well. For the last few years, and especially six or 10 months, Hamas has given the distinct impression to Israel that it was not in a fighting mode, that it was looking to negotiate and uh, talk its way uh, to a future. <clears throat> Meanwhile, it seems planning all along a massive invasion. Uh, they, were, they fooled the Israelis, uh, and the Israelis feel utterly humiliated about it. Raz, what do the events of the past few days mean for the efforts to normalise relations between Saudi Arabia, Israel and other Gulf countries? Well, as Ethan was saying, I mean, Israel is going to be very focused for quite some time, possibly months, simply on um, its efforts to contain Hamas militarily now. Uh, and that's really going to be front of mind with the level of casualties that we've seen. That, that, that has to be number one. So does that just take normalisation off the table? At the very least, it puts it very much on the back burner. There's going to be no appetite uh, to have those conversations continuing. They're very very delicate conversations to be happening at all, let alone in the environment that we're in at the moment. And certainly that may have been some of the intent from Hamas in carrying out this attack was to derail that process. Certainly it's got to be very much on the back burner for now. Roz, the Wall Street Journal is also reporting this morning that Iran helped Hamas to plan these attacks. What's been the official response to those reports? Well, obviously, it's a pretty natural line to draw, given the historical support that Iran has given to Hamas and obviously also by Hezbollah, uh, which Ethan was talking about a minute ago. Are you seeing U.S. caution officially on that? They're saying there's no, there's nothing that they see that tangibly ties Iran to this. But, of course, you're seeing a long history of support militarily, strategically, financially for Hamas um, and whether or not they knew about this attack, whether or not they were guiding this attack and helping them plan it is another question, but certainly there's a strong level of historic support there. The US is saying officially right now they don't see anything that directly links Iran to this particular attack. Ethan, what does all of this mean for the political situation in Israel now? The president calling for national unity. There's been some talk from some of the opposition party leaders as well. Yes, um, I think it's important to just recall for our listeners that um, what happened on Saturday morning was a, a fairly brutal civilian massacre. Hundreds and hundreds of people were slaughtered. Uh, this was not really a military incursion. These were kids at a concert. These were people in their homes. This has uh, unified this country in, 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 in an instant. And uh, the, the protest movement, for example, that was protesting against Prime Minister Netanyahu in the streets for nine months has now turned into a support system for the troops and the people in the South, raising money for them. The, as you said, opposition uh, has talked about uh, joining a national unity government. Uh, the president, as you said, mentioned, and I think that there's a likelihood of that happening. Uh, this is... Um, I don't think that long-term Prime Minister Netanyahu can survive this failure of intelligence, but for now, uh, people are gathering around and uh, really in a rather unified way, uh, which has eluded this country for this past year or two. Raz, a, f a final word to you about where else we should be watching in the region for the, the wider implications of the events we've seen in Israel. 
Well, obviously, again, the concern is that this does spread and perhaps if there's a, a long-running ground war in the area that does draw in other players, including Iran, although so far it's been fairly contained. You saw some rockets fired by Hezbollah. You saw some rockets fired at Hezbollah. But that's really been sort of like a gesture, if anything else. And there doesn't seem to be an appetite really to see this spread um, beyond where it is now and the terrible events itself within Israel. But certainly that bears watching and, and, and not just for security in the region but for beyond because of course this is an oil producing region if all supply gets affected that's very significant for the global economy as well especially given the the past year and a half of Russia's invasion again Mm. of Ukraine so those are sort of broader threads worth watching but for now obviously a strong desire to not see this spread. Okay, our AMEA News Director, Rosalind Matheson, and from Tel Aviv, our Israel Bureau Chief, Ethan Bronner. Thank you both very much. Now, we are continuing to monitor events in Israel, but turning to some political news here in the UK, the Labour Party holding its annual conference in Liverpool, fresh from the success of the by-election victory in Scotland, but the events of the weekend threatening to overshadow the party conference. Caroline Hepker is live in Liverpool for us this morning. Good morning to you, Caroline. What has been said, first of all, on this major international story at the Labour Party conference? So the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has made a complete break from three years ago, if you recall, Jeremy Corbyn presiding over a Labour Party accused of deep anti-Semitism that saw protests in Parliament Square and prominent Jewish MPs resigning. Labour has um, released a statement and also spoken about this uh, with the Shadow Health Secretary, Shadow Foreign Secretary, talking about this. Labour stands firmly in support of Israel's right to defend itself um, and talking about the indiscriminate attacks from Hamas. I mean, Corbyn has been expelled from the party, but he still would not condemn Hamas over the weekend in particular. He talked only about uh, any and all attacks in general. So I think it was also very significant that Luciana Berger, one of those MPs who resigned, returned to conference last night saying that Keir Starmer has shown the leadership and done ex- everything necessary to turn our party around. So this is significant. The Board of Deputies of British Jews and other Jewish leadership groups in the UK have thanked both the Prime Minister but also Keir Starmer for their support. So I think that um, on this issue, Keir Starmer is trying to clearly put a significant divide between the former leadership of the party and the way that he wants to steer uh, the Labour Party in the UK because, as you say, this is potentially the um, last party conference ahead of the next general election in the UK. Labour is 20 points ahead in the polls. The mood here, I must say, in Liverpool already, frankly, is excited Nervous, yes, scared to put a foot wrong, but the party, you know, has potentially a real shot at power. They've been out of power since 2010. Can Keir Starmer, the former prosecutor, turn politician, win the next general election in the UK? You mentioned that he won that uh, by-election, his party won the by-election in Scotland. So I, I put a few of these questions to Steve Rotherham, Labour's Liverpool Metro Mayor, about what Starmer has to do at conference, what he needs to do to convince voters and businesses and others to vote for him. I think what you're going to see over the next few days is a government in waiting and, you know, the, the shambles of the Tory party conference in Manchester will be in stark contrast to policy decisions and really innovative ideas about what we need to do to take our country forward. And that's really what I'm looking forward to over the next few days. 
Does Labour need to deliver a lot more policy detail now? I mean, that has been also a concern that actually Keir Starmer has said very little. And there's a big question mark about whether there'll be more detailed policy at conference or whether that will come in the manifesto or whether it won't come at all that 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 Labour is sort of relying on the Tories to lose rather than proposing policy. Does Labour need to deliver more policy now? Well, you're not going to see the manifesto launched in Liverpool um, at party conference because we don't know when a general election is going to be called. And if the, the Tories, if Rishi Sunak wants to call that general election, then I'm absolutely certain that you'll see all of the detail of policy um, come to fruition. At this moment in time, of course, we don't know when that will be, but we think it will be within the next 12 months or, or so. And, and so we're gearing up for that. Uh, and, you know, we have... Um, a, a an army of volunteers ready to take that message out onto the doorstep and to fight in every constituency so that we get a majority Labour government. And then we'll really see the difference that the Labour Party can make to this country rather than this failed Tory alternative. We've got the highest taxation levels that we've seen since the Second World War. It's hard to tax the UK more in order to create a fairer society, if that is the route. Yeah, and Rachel Reeves has said, you know, that we're going to be fiscally prudent. And and that's the right thing to do. We will find ways, of course, of ensuring that it's not just the quantum of funding that is available. And hopefully that does grow. Um, but also the distribution is fair. And that's what's happened so far in this country that's embedded the inequalities that the distribution formula, based on the, the Green Book methodology from the Treasury, has meant that uh, the Tories could give you know their shire counties more money. You know, Rishi Sunak is famous for actually standing up and making a speech saying that, that he's wrestled funding from the areas that need it most and give it to Tory areas, well, we need to reverse that and we need to ensure that those places that have been left behind for generations are now the the, the priority for an incoming Labour government. Do business leaders in Liverpool think that Labour is the party of business? Well, you can ask them, but certainly the businesses that I speak to overwhelmingly are supportive of what I've done in the Liverpool city region. And if what I've done is a microcosm of what can happen on a national scale, then yes, businesses are massively supportive. I tell you what they're not supportive of. They're not supportive of the Tory government that cancels HS2, that causes absolute confusion and chaos, that has the country in a shambles, that has a former Prime Minister and Liz Trust that has cost every single household thousands of pounds. They're not supportive of that but they are supportive of the things that I've been able to do with limited powers. But just imagine having a Labour Metro Mayor, Labour Councils, and then a Labour government working in tandem. That's the real prize that we're talking about. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, clearly thinks that he is the selling point, perhaps rather than his Conservative Party. That that seems to be the impetus. Does that target a Labour weakness, i.e. that that it is the Labour Party that seems to be more popular than Keir Starmer and that Starmer lacks personal appeal. Are you worried about that? Well, if Rishi Sunak is um, their their benefit, um, if he's their, their poster boy for Toryism, then I think we're going to do all right, aren't we? Because we saw what he was like. Um, he can't um, make a decision. He can't answer a question. 
he, he flips from one thing to another. Um, I, I just think that what you're going to find over the next few days is not just a, a leader of the Labour Party who provides that vision, but a united party. And that's the most important thing. The public and the electorate like to see teams. They like to see people working together. It's not about personality politics with, with that we had with Boris Johnson, for instance. And it's not about mad ideas that we've seen with Liz Truss. This is about somebody who will have a team and we will steady the ship and we will provide a vision to build on so that this country fulfills its full potential. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa device. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast, but now you can hear the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.